0: Good morning. Good morning. Let's begin class for prayer this morning. My gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study. We invite you into our hearts, into our minds, into our into this room to, to fellowship with you. This is why we're here today. and We pray that you will enlighten us, you will draw us in love, and we will come closer to you and represent you faithfully. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. The uh, lesson guide that we're starting today is entitled... Major Lessons for Minor Prophets. And if you open the lesson guide, if you have one, um, we're going to look at the introduction and look at the first two paragraphs of the introduction to the guide. And it says, the mind, someone said, is never satisfied. Never. That's because it faces a cruel paradox. The mind, which can contemplate the eternal, is composed of matter that is not eternal. And worst of all, the mind knows that it's not eternal. L- like chickens and oysters, we are going to die. The difference, however, is that chickens and oysters don't know it. We do, and that realization causes us a great deal of anguish and suffering. How do we get into this mess? The answer is, of course, one word, sin. Sin leads to death. Humans sin, therefore humans die. It doesn't get simpler than that. When you hear that answer, one word, sin, do you ever think that the word sin is overused to the point that we almost become numb to it? or, if not numb to it, wrongly responsive to it, respond in a wrong way toward that word? How do we get into this mess, sin? When you hear the answer, sin, does that clear it up for you? No. That's my point, is it clear? Oh, okay, that's what that is. I, uh, did a, uh, I, I had an opportunity to speak to some students at uh, one of the Christian academies, and I asked them to fill out a card, and I said, tell me your understanding... Of what is sin? And, and turn in your cards. I got 300 responses, and I got a variety of answers. Things like sin, doing bad stuff, um, doing bad things. Some said it was actually not doing bad things, but bad stuff, disobeying God. The most common answer, and you could guess, what was the most common answer for sin? Okay. Breaking the commandments, that was the most common answer, or transgression of the law. Um, Occasionally, somebody would say something like, failing to love. Someone said not having faith. You know, Paul, whatever's not a faith is sin. And one person said selfishness. Mm -hmm. Selfishness. Would it be important to have a healthy understanding of what sin actually is? Mm -hmm. Well, in the second paragraph, it says human sin... Therefore, humans die. What do you think of that phrase? Humans sin, therefore humans die. Can't get simpler than that. When, when the disciples asked Jesus, who sinned that this man was born blind? Him or his parents? What was Jesus' answer? Yeah. Human. Humans sin, therefore humans die. Do newborns commit sin? Do unborn fetuses commit sin? Do they die? Huh. Do we die because we commit sin? Or do we die because we're born sinful? Is there a difference between the two?
1: Absolutely.
0: Is there a difference? You know, It says in Psalms 51, we're born in sin, conceived in iniquity. Is there a difference from having a sin condition than from actually committing sin?
1: Yeah, because we're born in a sinful condition.
0: So, which one of you chose To be a sinner? Did you make the choice to be a sinner? Sometimes. Or were we. No. no, We can choose to sin. But we are sinners whether we choose it or not.
1: And how fair is that?
0: How fair is that? Well, an HIV infected man and an HIV infected woman get together and have a child born HIV infected.
1: That's not fair.
0: What did the the baby do wrong? Yeah,
1: nothing.
0: Nothing. Didn't do a thing wrong. So the baby doesn't have anything to worry about then, right? No worries. Didn't do anything wrong. You got HIV, but it's not your fault, so you have no worries. Born in sin, conceived in iniquity. Again, what we talk about in here, step back and ask the question, which version of law are we looking through? If we look through Roman imposed law, then it's all about whether you're guilty or innocent. Did you do it or not? That's what matters. And if you are guilty, then what can we do to have the law paid for in peace? But if it's under natural law, laws of life, design protocols, then you know what? The baby didn't do anything wrong. There's no guilt attached to the baby, but guess what? The baby still has a terminal condition, which needs remedy. You see the big difference, big difference. So back to the question. You know, we're born, we're born in sin because we descended from Adam. And Adam changed himself. So the question, what is sin? Transgression of the law or being deviant, being out of harmony with the way life was, is designed to operate. Sin is disharmony with God's character, law, methods, principles, the design protocols of love. And being out of harmony with the way life is built results in death. 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 There you go. So humans die because we sin. Or another way to say that would be because we have a condition that is terminal and without remedy results in death. I think the first way they say it is much too easily misconstrued into this penal looking thing with a God who, who must punish. If we understand the idea of sin as a bad act first, it's, it's human sin, which makes it sound like it's something we do. Doesn't it sound like that? Mm -hmm. Human sin, therefore humans die. It's stuff we do. If that's our idea of what sin actually is first, rather than what Christ said, what did Christ say about sin? Matthew chapter 5, he was talking to them. You say if you commit adultery, bad act, you commit sin. But I say, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. What's he saying is the source of the bad act? A condition of heart. You say if you commit murder, bad act, you commit sin. I say if you hate your brother in your heart. What he's saying is bad behaviors are manifestations. He says it in another place. From the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good man brings forth good out of the good stored up in him, and the evil man brings forth evil out of the evil stored up in him. Again, acts or behaviors are symptoms of a condition of heart. This is the the issue. So, I... uh, The same idea of sin as behavior or acts was a distortion about God two thousand years ago, when it was thought that health and wealth were 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 evidences of you doing good stuff and in the good standing with God, and sickness and disease was was inflictions of punishment from your bad behaviors and sins. Here's a quotation out of Desire of Ages seven four seventy one. Think what you see. What you think of this? It was generally believed by the Jews that sin is punished in this life. Every affliction was regarded as the penalty of some wrongdoing, either of the sufferer himself or of his parents. It is true that all suffering results from transgression of God's law, but this truth had become perverted. Pause. Can you explain how all suffering is in some degree a, a result of transgression of God's law, but how it became perverted? Anybody want to try, take that on? <laughs> you go. this is not a trick question okay when Adam and Eve sinned did nature get changed okay and when nature changed is there now disease as the b- person blowing blind that wasn't due to some specific act on his parents part or or his part but is a result of, of humanity now suffering under genetic defects all nature groans under the weight of sin we're out of harmony with God's design so all suffering is because things are not functioning out as God designed them to, but not all suffering is because of a specific act of an individual person. You see the difference? Okay. All right. Satan, the author of sin and all its results, has led men to look upon disease and death as proceeding from God. Hear that. Satan has led men to look upon disease and death as proceeding from God as punishment arbitrarily inflicted on account of sin. Think, think through that, guys, and think about the theology we're taught. God, in order to be just, must do what? To the sinner in the end. So death comes out from who? From God. Yes, this is, this is... So, do we still preach these types of ideas? It, this Two thousand years ago, the Jews had this problem. This problem still persistent today. Hence, once... And hence, one upon whom some great affliction or calamity had fallen had the additional burden of being regarded as a great sinner. Thus, the way was prepared for the Jews to reject Jesus. What prepared the way for them to reject Jesus? What was it she's saying here was the underpinnings that put their minds in a position they could not accept him? Belief in a lie. A uh, lie about? The nature and character of God Himself. Nature and character of God, His law, His methods, His design, protocols. How He deals with deviations from His design. He is the source of infliction of punishment, suffering, and death. This is what they believe. He who hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows was looked upon as the Jews as stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted, and they hid their faces from Him. Do we have these types of ideas taught today that that God had to strike His Son down and execute Him at the cross, afflict Him, and strike Him? Still taught today, these problems. Are Christians setting themselves up to reject the second advent of Christ as the Jews rejected it 2,000 years ago? Because they hold these same perspectives about God. God had given a lesson designed to prevent this. The history of Job had shown that suffering is inflicted by Satan and is overruled by God for the purposes of mercy. But Israel did not understand the lesson. The same error for which God had reproved the friends of Job was repeated by the Jews in their rejection of Christ. Paragraphs three through seven in our introduction. It says, Yes, humans die. And here's the rub. We were never supposed to. We were originally created for eternal life. The plan from the start was that we would live forever. Death, then, is an intruder, the most unnatural of all acts. We're so used to death that we take it for granted. We just accept it as a part of life. Death is part of life? That sounds absurd and paradoxical. It's because it is. Death is the negation of life, not some aspect of it. In this context, we come to this quarter's lesson. Perhaps it can be best expressed by the famous quote in Ellen White's where she writes that the great theme of the Bible is the work of God in laying the glory of man in the dust and doing for man that which it is not in his power to do for himself. And what is it that God does for us that we don't have the power to do for ourselves? Of course, he saves us from the most unnatural of acts, death, the eternal death that would be ours if it, if it, uh, ours were it not for God's grace, as revealed in the plan of salvation. Thoughts about that. Thoughts about that.
1: Death actually is natural apart from God's
0: law. Okay. Did you hear what she said? This is well said. <laughs> What is the natural result of breaking God's law? That's the natural result. So she's right. It is the natural consequence of stepping out of harmony with the way God built things to run. Eve, other comments? No, it's, it's well said. What is it then that God does for us that we could not and cannot do for ourselves? How does he save us from death? And this... Puts us back in harmony with his So And so the question, what is the cause of death? And do you see this question, what is the cause of death? What is the solution for death? Takes us right back to, to the question of, how do you understand God's law? There's two ways to understand it. If you believe in the opposed gall, law construct of a Roman emperor, then death is a just infliction of penalty or punishment. And Jesus came to appease and pay that penalty. But if we believe the law is what you're suggesting, the design protocols upon which life is built, then we believe that the death is a result of being out of harmony with God and his design. And we realize Jesus came to reveal truth, to break the bonds of deception that keeps our minds afraid of God, and to destroy death and cure humanity, putting us back into harmony with God and restoring his image in man. So the lesson concludes, the introduction concludes nicely with this. The message is that God wants to save us from our sins, no, to save us from our sins or sinfulness, to save us from the devastation that sin, rebellion, and disobedience bring. This is well said. Over and over in these books, we see the Lord pleading with his people to repent, to put away their sins, to return to him, to find life, not death, salvation, not damnation, hope, not despair. This is well said. Christ God is working through Christ to heal, to save, to restore, not to condemn. And so let, as we go through this quarter, let that last sentence, that last, that portion I just quoted, let that be the focus that we're going to look to see God reaching to, to save us, to heal us and restore us. So jump into the first lesson, which is called Spiritual Adultery, Hosea. Spiritual Adultery. And the lesson has a memory verse, which is Hosea 2.23. But before we read that, I want to actually Read a little bit before that, Hosea 1, 4 through 11. So if you have your Bible, turn to Hosea 1, 4 through 11, because Hosea 1, 4 through 11 sets the the groundwork to understand the memory verse. And this is what it says. Then the Lord said to Hosea, call him, this is the first child that was going to be born to Gomer, call him Jezreel, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. In that day I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. Then the, then the Lord said to Hosea, call her Ruhamah, for I will no longer show love to the house of Israel. The name Ruhamah means not loved. So I will no longer show love to the house of Israel that I should at all forgive them. Yet I will show love to the house of Judah. I will save them, not by bow, sword, battle, or by horses and horsemen, but by the Lord their God. And if you remember the history, the Assyrians came to attack Judah, and how were they saved? The 185,000 Assyrians, remember? They weren't saved by an army. They were saved by the Lord. After she had weaned Ruhamah, Gomer had another child. Then the Lord said, call him in lo Ami." For you are not my people, and lo means not my people. So these names of the children mean these things. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. In the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will be reunited, and they will appoint one leader and will come out of the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. Now look at our memory verse. After that is our foundation. I will plant her for myself in the land. I will show my love to the one I called not my loved one. The Hebrew, not my loved one, lo Ruhama, the name of the first child. I, so uh, I will show my love to the one called lo Ruhama, not my loved one. I will say to those called not my people, in the Hebrew there, Lo-Ami. I will say to the one called Loami, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. So do you see the connection here? So meditate on Think about that for a minute. And what was Hosea's life, this description, this, this reality of having children? And by the way, if you read the context, it appears that, um, that Jezreel was the son of Hosea, but Lo-Ruhamah and Lo-Ami were not. They are are not referred to as his children, but her children. So, what was the life of Hosea supposed to teach? Any thoughts? Possibilities. Pardon? The love of God. The love of God. Anything more specific than that? Was it to act out the history of the Jews? Yes. Or to
1: show that God's love isn't dependent on our actions.
0: To show that God's love is not dependent on our actions. Ooh. Okay.
2: Also, that He is He is a lover of not only His own children, but the children. That were never his children.
0: Ah, okay. So, or do we see a type of God-accepting people into the family of Abraham? These who are not my children will be called my children. These who are not genetic descendants of Abraham are going to be called children of Abraham. The grafting in that Paul talks about. So why is the idea... Now, we we have two competing ideas in Christian thought regarding who in 2013 is, con- is considered children of Abraham. One thought is those who have genetic descendant f- descendancy from Abraham are considered children of Abraham. Another thought are those who have accepted Christ and have the character of Abraham, that Abraham received through his faith. He trusted God and was recognized as righteous. Those so-, so those who trust God and have righteous character are considered children of Abraham. Why is the idea that the promise is made to Abraham are actually fulfilled in the Christian church, more appealing than the idea that the promises get fulfilled in genetic descendants of Abraham. We'd be
2: left out if it
0: weren't true. We'd be left out if it weren't true. Okay. Well, that's kind of... Uh, it's true, but it's you know kind of selfish. <laughs> but it's true. <laughs> How about the problem of sin? Is the problem of sin and its solution a problem and a solution only for the genetic descendants of Abraham? Or is the problem of sin a problem of all descendants of Adam and cured in Christ so that for God so loved the Jews that he gave his only begotten son? Whoa, okay, so now we hear this is actually much broader than the Jewish people. So God's plan of salvation extends way past Judaism to the whole world. Jesus told the genetic descendants of Abraham that their father was, he looked at him and said, you are your father, the the devil. Why? Because they had the wrong gene pool? Or they had the wrong character? The wrong character. If God chose a people for salvation uh, based on genetics, it would make God out to be a racist. Martin Luther King Jr. said, This is a famous quote, you've all heard it. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, their genetics, but by the content of their character. But by the content of their character. Do you think Martin Luther King Jr. was wrong? Do you think that Jesus would tell Mr. King, well actually, character isn't what's important, it's the genes you have. Because I'm going to tell you, guys, What I'm saying in some Christian groups would be anathema today. There are some Christian groups that would be quite upset at what I'm saying today because they actually believe it's genetics that matter. This is one of the reasons there's such a strong U.S. backing to the nation of Israel today. Because they see the promises made are not about character, but about genetics. So what does the scripture say about all this relationship? Well, Genesis eighteen eighteen it says, Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. How many nations? All nations. Which means that the descendant, not descendants, Paul talks about the seed, not the seeds, the descendant of Abraham, Christ, will bring salvation for all human beings. Isaiah 42.6 I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light to the Gentiles. To open the eyes that are blind, to free the captives from prison, and to release from the dungeons those who sit in darkness. A light to the Gentiles. Isaiah 56 Isaiah 56 Starting verse 3, let no foreigner who has bound himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. Did you hear that? Don't don't let a foreigner say that the Lord will exclude you from his people. Let not any eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says, to the eunuch who keeps my Sabbaths, who chooses what pleases me and holds fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name. What's a name symbolic of? Character. Character, and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will not be cut off. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to serve him, to love the name of the Lord, and to worship him, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it, and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. What's he after here? What's he looking for? Genetics? Character character, restoration of the law written up. remember the new covenant says, oh, who keep my covenant, and what is the covenant according to Jeremiah in Hebrew, I will do what, write my law on your heart and mind, this is the covenant, being restored, regenerated, recreated within, and it's, and it's true for Jew or Gentile alike, it doesn't matter nation, nationalities, color of skin, what matters is man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks the On the heart. This is the question. Who do you think wants us to be divided by external, superficial stuff? It's the devil. Yeah. Sunday's lesson, third paragraph, it says, There are important parallels between Hosea's story and God's experience with Israel. On a human level, Gomer was an adulteress. Don't, Gomer was adulterous against Hosea. On a spiritual level, Israel was unfaithful to God. Just as Gomer's immo- immorality uh, hurt her husband's heart, so Israel's idolatry grieved the great heart of God. Hosea was called to endure a broken heart and broken marriage. He must have suffered public indignation and disgrace. Yet, the more he experienced Gomer's unfaithfulness, the deeper was his understanding of God's pain and frustration with Israel. What is adultery? Is it different in marriage than with God? Is marital adultery physical where adultery with God is with the heart? Or, is marital adultery also with the heart? How does the Lord handle our adultery with Him?
2: With forgiveness.
0: First thing on my list. There's actually a I, I actually listed a, 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 a progression that happens. First thing with forgiveness. What happens next? What do you do after forgives? Next thing God does with with adultery. Restore. Seeks to restore. Mm-hmm. He doesn't restore. Seeks to restore. Pleads, begs, goes after, longs for, and then what? He warns. What's he warn of? What's, what's the warning that the Lord gives for those in adultery with him? Yeah, which is what? What, what, are the, what is the result of, of, of staying in rebellion against the Lord, of staying alienated from him?
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: So then what does the Lord do after he forgives, after he seeks to restore, after he pleads, after he begs, after he warns, he lets go to reap suffering and pain and then when we cry out to him, he rescues. He rescues and pleads with us again and loves us and forgives us and leaves us free and lets us go again to reap the pain again and rescues again and forgives again and lets us go again to reap the pain again. Do you see the, do you see the pattern? But he refuses, he refuses A complete reconciliation until the heart is healed. Why?
1: You can't have a complete reconciliation until the heart is healed.
0: Because, did you hear what she said? Because it's not possible. You can't have a complete reconciliation with a divided heart. You can't have a complete reconciliation with somebody whose heart is not trustworthy, whose heart is not for you, whose heart is not transformed, whose heart is not regenerated. There can't be a reconciliation, not because of a deficiency on God's part, his grace, his love, his goodness, but because within us remain the seeds of rebellion until we're healed. Isn't it beautiful? Monday's lesson continues with spiritual adultery. What, and the question is, what is spiritual adultery? How did the Jews commit spiritual adultery? What did they do? Second paragraph, Says The prophet Jeremiah compared God's unfaithful people to a prostitute who lived with many lovers despite everything that God provided for them. In a similar way, the prophet Ezekiel called idolatrous Israel an adulterous wife who had departed from her true husband. For this reason, idolatry in the Bible is viewed as spiritual adultery. Idolatry. You agree? Dis- anybody disagree? Agree? Disagree? We sleep? (laughs) So the lesson suggests it's idolatry. Consider this quotation out of Faith I Live By, page 59. Idolatry is spiritual adultery. Thousands have a false conception of God and his attributes. They are as verily serving a false god as were the servants of Baal. Are we worshiping the true God as he is revealed in his word, in Christ, in nature? Or are we adoring some philosophical idol enshrined in his place? God is a God of truth. Justice and mercy are the attributes of his throne. He is a God of love, of pity, of tender compassion. Thus he is represented in his Son, our Savior. He is a God of patience and long-suffering. If such is the being whom we adore and to whose character we are seeking to assimilate, we are worshiping the true God. Any thoughts about that? Do I need to review any of the quotes from last week? <laughs> I heard so. are, we, are we an adulterous church? Do we have problems with idolatry today? Yes. In, and do we have problems with spiritual adultery today? Every bit as serious as the Jews did. Yes. I see some heads nodding. Any doubts? And then the third paragraph, I'm not going to read the quotes from last week because we have more to cover, but go back and read last week's notes if you haven't, and you'll see documentation from the various authority sources in Christianity on the views they take and what they describe God and what he did to his son. Third paragraph says, the expression grain with new wine and oil also is used in the book of Deuteronomy to describe Israel's staple produced that... Israel-stable produce that people enjoyed in abundance in accordance with God's promises as given through Moses. In Hosea's time, the people were so ungrateful to God, so wrapped up in the world around them, that they were presenting these gifts, originally given them by God, to their false idols. What a warning this should be to all of us that the gifts we have been given should be used in the service of the Lord and not in ways that never were intended for them. Is it possible for us today to use God's gifts in ways that work against God's cause? How?
1: Misrepresenting him.
0: Misrepresenting him. Any, any specific examples?
1: Well, Jesus said that, you know, to the Jews, you travel across the world and you, you evangelize and proselytize and bring people in and they're twice the son of hell as you are. So, we can do the same thing if we are presenting the wrong picture of God through our evangelism.
0: So, evangelism to a distorted picture of God would be a misuse of our resources. Yeah. How many Christians think they're doing that? How many Christians that are evangelizing think they're representing God falsely? Did the Jews and the Pharisees actually, who were going out and evangelizing Christ, actually believe they were working for the devil? No. Well, That's a red flag. That's a very serious thing to consider, isn't it? I mean, everybody who's on a mission for God thinks that their mission is the right mission. How do you tell? What's a safe path? According to the um, Christian Encyclopedia 2001, there are 34,000 Christian sects or groups. 34,000 different Christian sects or groups all claiming the Bible as their basis of faith. Think that through. How could it possibly be that this one book results in 34,000 different groups? You see, there's something wrong, isn't there? And I'm going to suggest to you what's wrong is that people have, have, have fallen into the trap of dividing the, the resources or threads that God has given us to discern truth. And the scripture tells us there's three primary. One scripture, all scripture is God breathed and given for reproof and righteousness and so forth. So scripture itself, Romans chapter two says, for God's divine nature is understood and seen in what he has made so that men are without excuse, nature, science. And the Bible tells us taste and see that the Lord is good which is experience. Or he said to to Thomas, hey, touch and see. Put your hand on my side. Feel, feel. Get some experience here. Three threads of evidence are to be harmonized perfectly. And if you have an idea that's supported by one thread but contradicted by the others, there's something wrong with that idea. And if you have science without scripture, you get into agnosticism and evolutionism. If you had experience without scripture and science, you end up in mysticism and fanaticism. And if you end up with scripture without science and experience, you end up with 34,000 different views and everybody confused. And in our class, in our ministry, we have developed the the integrative evidence-based approach where all three threads have to harmonize. All three threads have to harmonize. And when that happens, you can navigate through all the different views out there. And I can tell you, the, the chief opponents of what we teach here in this community were adamant that this approach cannot be used. We cannot bring in experience and we cannot bring in um, science, even though there's biblical foundation for doing that. They want sola scriptura and the scripture only. Why? Because you can when you take scripture and, and rest it away from the evidences of God's designs in the natural world around us that He built and the experience we have, you can twist Scripture to say anything. You get thirty-four thousand different groups. This is why. Yes.
1: Not to make an excuse or justify it, but I know from my own personal experience, when when you said the third part is taste and see experience, taste and see that I'm good. I know in my own personal experience, I didn't even know what good was. And still, am still learning what good is. I'm still learning what real, genuine love looks like. But, and that's changed over the last five years dramatically. I thought I knew when the Bible said God is love, I thought I knew what that meant. And I had a terribly distorted view
0: of love. it? Tell us how it changed over the five years.
1: Well... I think I had no concept that when the Bible said God is love, that meant purely, truly all of the things that I associate when I say Dennis is loving. I, I had a different view of what God will do in love from what Dennis will do in love or what other people will do in love. I held him to a different standard because he had to be just too. and. That was a very distorted view, so all, all I'm saying is that it, it's taken me a long time to progress to the idea that, no, I can just let go and say, God is love, and loving, always. And I don't have to explain that with any little side things, but he's also just.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and you know, loving and love are two different things. All of us can be loving. How many of us are love? You know, God is, it doesn't say God is loving. It says he is love. This is a huge difference. So when you understand that's his nature in being, everything he does is an outworking or expression of his nature of love. So when he creates, he builds his universe to operate on what? Love. This is how he is. It's natural. It's automatic. is who he is. Yes, uh, Wendell.
2: Because we are damaged creatures um, and have the effects of sin in both our minds as well as our bodies and whatnot, Beauty is in the eye of the beholder, and so we sometimes have very warped like, perceptions and experiences, and so we bring all of that to when we read something or experience something or see something in nature, and so consequently, we can't have more than 34,000 different ideas of what God is like just because of where we're coming from because we have not yet been healed.
0: And do you think all 34,000 of those are legitimate and healthy? No. In fact, do you think some of those are like with the Jews are actually antagonistic to the truth and obstructive to the truth?
2: But Christ said, if someone is not against you, he is for you, and do not preach against him. And so even though I do not agree with most of the things that I hear, I have to be a little careful in condemning others' valid attempts at searching after God.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I'm not suggesting that. What I am suggesting, though, is that there are methods that are... Um, much more likely to help us navigate accurately the evidences God has given v- versus methods that are much more vulnerable to leading to uh, a, a warping or a distortion of our conclusions than others. And so I'm, I'm suggesting that, that we're safer when we integrate the three than if we go with one of the three. We're much more vulnerable, even with an honest heart, to, being, to, to misunderstanding, with an innocent misunderstanding. But this is the point that Ellen White makes uh, when she talks about Paul, that Paul's heart was for the Lord, but he was misguided. He was zealous, but he had misunderstanding. And therefore, it's, and she uses the analogy, if you innocently, with, with a good motive, take the wrong highway, you end up in the wrong place. Okay, And so error does not lead to truth. And even an innocent person embracing and promoting error does not get edified by error. So with an innocent heart, we can still end up in the wrong place. So what I'm suggesting is not to tell people you should believe this idea or that idea. I'm trying to suggest a methodology that you incorporate into your search for truth that would be more safe, particularly when you bring in testable laws that you can test in the world around you. Those things are very powerful. In in, in my new book, I, I introduce this method. Into the book. And, and, we, and every major point we go through, I show through all three threads, through scripture, through science, through experience, um, how each truth is supported by all three threads in, in this book. So it, it's, it's a powerful mechanism, yes. Uh, there was a time in our Earth's history where there was one, let's say, organization or one group that basically gave
2: us what they thought was the picture uh, of, of God that we should have. The
0: Reformation kind of took care of that, and then we, you know, it split into different different areas, and then, as you say, we have 34,000 different groups. But I think it comes down to,
2: I think, each one of us as an individual has a picture of God, and we have to deal with it on that level. So we have millions of different approaches as, as far as an individual is concerned, rather than groups.
0: And, and I think maybe that's what Wendell was trying to suggest, that, that people come from their starting point and have their own perspectives. And and when I was in psychiatry, that one of the metaphors they told us is, is a golf metaphor, that you play the ball where it lies. You don't get the privilege of moving it to a better place. You meet people where they are, speak a language they understand, have to help them with the ideas that they have. I think that's what you're saying too, isn't it? Yeah. That there's all these different views because it's where people are. Did you have more you wanted to say? No. Yeah, that's okay. Mm-hmm. Yes, over here.
1: Jesus, at the end of his life, based on this earth, basically said that, "Father, I've done the work that you gave me to do. I have revealed you to
0: the people." And any constructs of God, if we can't filter it through the life of Christ, we need to rethink that construct. I I think that's well said as well. I mean, He becomes the lens, the touchstone that we come back to. And if it wasn't true for Jesus, then it's not true of the Father. If you see me, you've seen the Father. that's, That's an excellent point. Yeah, absolutely. Let, let's go on to Tuesday's lesson. And Tuesday suggests that we look at Hosea chapter 2. And so if turning your scriptures to Hosea 2, we're going to go through chapter 2. And we're going to actually, you know, read a verse or two, and then we're going to talk about what it's saying, what it means. Um, starting in verse 1. Say to your brothers, my people, and your, and say of your brothers, my people, and of your sisters, my loved one. Rebuke your mother. Rebuke her, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. Let her remove the adulterous look from her face and the unfaithfulness from between her breasts. What does it mean? Is this talking about Gomer? About the people of Israel? About the Christian church? Or about all of humanity? Or all of the above are included? All, of the, all of the above. above. All of the above. Okay. Why are they not. Husband and wife. Why are they not husband and wife? He says, "You are not my wife. Why? She is not my wife. I am not her husband. Why?
1: Because
0: those aren't words. Those aren't words? Those aren't... Can you, because they're not legal documents, are they? Right. What does it mean to be a husband and wife in, re, in reality, in God's view? The two shall become... <laughs> one. In, and remember what Jesus prayed in John 17. I pray that they will be that one, as you and I are one, the unity of... Heart, mind, motive, purpose, character. They're not husband and wife because they have different character. God is holy, she's not holy. God is loving, she's selfish. They're not united. They're not husband and wife. Well said. <clears throat> Alrighty. Uh, what is implied by unfaithfulness from between her breasts? Her heart is her Yeah, exactly. What lies below the breast, right? The heart. Exactly right. Exactly right. It's suggesting that the issue is of unity and a genuine marriage is the intimacy and bond of the heart, which was not in this relationship. All right. Verse three. Otherwise, I will strip her naked and make her as bare as on the day she was born. I will make her like a desert, turn her into a parched land, and slay her with thirst. Well, that sounds nice. Remember that, woman. No. What, what does it mean? Will God inflict this, or is this an expression of what happens to the soul separate from God? Remember in Revelation, describing the Laodicean church. Wretched, poor, blind, and naked. Speaking of physical nakedness or spiritual nakedness. And what about here in the case of Hosea? Is this talking about physical nakedness or spiritual nakedness? And then, when Jesus told the woman at the well, ask... If you could ask me, I'd give you living water. It'd overflow. You'd never thirst again. Was he speaking of H2O or something else when he talked to the woman at the well? When he talks about the woman here dying of thirst, is it talking about water, H2O, or something else? And what does the water represent? When he tells the woman at the well, if you ask me, I would, would," and it would overflow too many. Love. Pours his love. The spiritual water is the water of love. Pours it into our hearts and overflows to many. We love others. But you, when you're committing adultery, you don't love. You're selfish. It's all about me. I'm going to get what I can get. Not loving other people. Die of thirst. Die of lack of love. Verse 4. I will not show my love to her children because they are children of adultery. Does it say God does not love her children? Is that what it says? God does not love her children. It says he won't show His love to her. Why? Why doesn't he show his love? Because such blessings would be misused, would be misunderstood, would be taken as evidences of blessings from false gods and solidify her children in rebellion against God. He can't bless them. He can't pour it out upon them. Because their minds are not right, they would misunderstand it as proof that what they're doing is okay. Verse 5, their mother has been unfaithful and has conceived them in disgrace. She says, I will go after my lovers who give me my food and my water, my wool and my linen, my oil and my drink. Therefore, I will block her path with thorn bushes. I will wall her in so that she cannot find her way. Tim? Yes?
1: How do you contrast that then with the text that said that God reigns on the just and the unjust? we know that... I mean, God does bless.
0: Well, first off, we're staying in the context. We're telling a story. There's a metaphor. There's an analogy being told here. And we would do an injustice to pull that out and compare it with something else talked about in another context for another purpose. When, when the, when it, and so right now we're looking at a purpose here. He's trying to describe the process. And that's not suggesting the sun doesn't shine on everyone. Of course that's true. But, but God's ability to bless us as individuals in our lives, to develop our, 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 our resources, our, our talents, and so forth, the parable of the talent, can't go forward if we're misusing them. And this is what it's saying here. I can't pour the blessing out on you. And in fact, why, why did they end up in, 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 uh, in captivity? Why were they taken away? Why did the, the hedge be pulled around? Back when they were out in the wilderness and the, and the scorpions and snakes came in, why did it happen? Did God send the, the snakes in? No, he only withdrew because they were rebelling. I can't continue to bless you and protect you like this because you'll think what you're doing is okay. So that's what's going on. All right, so what verse were we on? Okay, so we just did five and six. What does it mean? Does God actively inflict harm? Or is this a description of the natural consequences built into reality that occur when we step out of harmony with God's design? What happens to the drug addict, the porn addict, the adulterer, the smoker? When we violate God's law, do we reap consequences that hurt like thorn bushes? And if we, tr- if we thrash around frantic to free ourselves, do we get confused, lost, overwhelmed, and unable to find our way out? That's what it's talking about. She can't find her way out, stuck in all her confusion. Hand, yes, somewhere. Uh, I was, uh, I was just going to make the, that that same point that um,
1: that it's not necessarily God withdrawing His presence or withdrawing His blessings. It's just that when we have a wrong concept of God, we lose our way. We become confused. I mean, everything, our whole, uh, our concept of God shapes our understanding of 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 our life and of every concept in the Bible.
0: Well said, absolutely right, absolutely right. And so if this happens, what you're saying happens, is it an infliction or is it the automatic result or consequence of choosing distorted beliefs and choosing destructive behaviors? Next verse, seven. She will chase after her lovers but not catch them. She will look for them but not find them. She will say, I will go back to my husband as at first, for then I was better off than now. What's being described? Reality bears in. You go into the rebellious life, you walk away from God's design, you live out harmony of harmony the way he built things and reality bears in you, what, what the addict calls the hip bottom, the prodigal son eating the, eating the pig's food, living the pig's lop. This is the same, same process described there. All your efforts to find peace, you can't find peace in the ways of the world. You can't find health in doing unhealthy behaviors. There's no joy that can be, be found in outside God's design. And so, in this awareness, it leads to a conclusion. What did the prodigal son come to? What's described here? There's a conclusion that comes. Better off at home. Better off at home. Better off at home. Better off at home. Go back to her husband. In this case, God. But notice what is the motive to go back? Love for God. Notice the motive. Because exactly selfish. Because she's better off there. I can get a better deal. Back there. This is how we all come to Christ. We come to him broken, hurt, beaten down, frustrated with self in the world, lost, discouraged, hopeless, seeking relief for self. Help me, God, help me. I'm beaten down. We come initially, not primarily because we love him, but because we need him. And how does Christ receive us, even in that state? He runs out to meet us. Remember the prodigal's father? He runs out. Blessing us, put the robe on him, put the ring. He, he receives us in love, and then knowing we don't deserve it, knowing we haven't listened, we've been foolhardy, and we are treated with such consummate love, grace, happiness. For in, in Him we see, in, in, in goodness, what happens in our heart when we get that treatment.
1: Goodness of God leads us to repentance,
0: a genuine repentance, and what starts flowing in our hearts: love. love for God. <clears throat> we love him because he first loved us is there a lesson here in how we should treat others today in this process I just described do we see a problem in the middle east today when we choose a different path of dealing with those who betray us we, f- we choose a path of of punishment and retaliation yes
2: uh, just to share something quickly uh, I wasn't a race and I became an happiness Initially, because I saw that it was logic, that it really made sense, and that there was definitely something
0: in there. And as I started going to church, I eventually just fell in love with God. And so, it just to prove your whole point. Thank you so much for sharing that. Appreciate that. Do you see in the Middle East, will they ever get love by retaliation? No. No. And can you get that kind of love if you've rejected what Jesus has come to teach us? If you reject Jesus as, a, as we read earlier that they did 2,000 years ago because they accepted the distortion of God's law that we read about earlier and you view, and you view God as, as this punishing being and you won't accept Jesus as representing God, you're in trouble. Because what it said, we become like the God we worship and admire. It's very scary. Um, verse 8. She has not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain the new wine and oil, who lavished it on her, on her, the silver and gold, which they used for bail. How many fail to give God glory for their talents, abilities, health, temporal blessings, but instead use those for self-advancement and self-glorification, which results in what? How many spend their money on their addictions? The resources God gives. All right, verse 9. Therefore, I will take away my grain when it ripens and my new wine. Why? Think why. Why is he taking it away? Uh, New wine when it ripens, when it's ready. I will take back my wool and my linens intended to cover her nakedness. So now I will expose her lewdness before the eyes of her lovers. No one will take her out of my hands. I will stop her celebrations, her yearly festivals, her new moons, her Sabbath days, her appointed feast days. I will ruin her vines and her fig trees, which she said were, were to... Which she said were her pay from her lovers. I will make them a thicket, and wild animals will devour them. I will punish her for the day she burned incense to the bales. She decked herself with rings and jewels and went after her lovers, but me she forgot. Declares the Lord. What does all this mean? Is it God who's inflicting punishment? Is it? She said consequence. Is it God who's inflicting punishment, or is it He's pulling back and letting her have her way? Romans 1, yes, they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, therefore he gave them up. He gave them up. He let them go. Yes?
2: It's, it's fascinating to me that God is willing to take the blame uh, for, for these things. He's willing to risk being misunderstood in an effort to, to get Israel's attention, to get our attention.
0: Yes, and in the Old Testament...
2: He knew, he knew you know, when this was written that it would be misconstrued, and he would be blamed for inflicting punishment. And in reality, he's, he's given us an idea of the natural progression or the way it snowballs.
0: And one of the explanations I like best as to why God did speak in this way so many times in the Old Testament is because of the nature of the mind of the people. They were primitive, polytheistic. In a polytheistic world with lots of local deities, and everybody sacrificed to all the deities because the more deities you sacrifice to, the better your odds were to have a good outcome. And so if you look in the Old Testament, there's not a lot of reference to Satan. You can see him in Job. You can see him referenced in Ezekiel and, and, and uh, Isaiah, the serpent in the, in the garden. But he's not referenced a lot. And often, and the best explanation I have is because God knew that if you actually exposed Satan then, that many of the people would have worshipped him and started sacrificing to him. Mm -hmm. And so God took the responsibility for all of it on him so that they would deal with him and only him. Um, Let's go on. Let's go on. Yes.
1: It's like everybody was children. When you're dealing with children, they see the parent as the enforcer. And all of the other children in the room see the parent as the enforcer. You don't take them to deep, deep theological discussions or philosophical discussions of why you're brushing your teeth. It's just because mommy said so. And all of the other children in the room understand it the same way, at the same level.
0: Yeah, well said. Let's move on. I want to bring this to close. We just talked about how she was burning the incenses to the bales, decked herself and gave bail credit. Now, now let's go on to verse 14 through 16. And notice what's said here. Therefore, I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the desert and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her back her vineyards and will make the valley of Acor a door of hope. There she will sing as in the days of her youth and as the days she came up out of Egypt. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. Do you know the the Hebrew for master here? Baal. You will no longer call me Baal. Now put the pieces together. Baal in Hebrew means master and husband. This is what it means in Hebrew. They used to have Baal Peor and Baal Pereth. These are cities named for Yahweh, and they referred to him as Baal, because in Hebrew, Baal means master and husband. But it was a domineering, controlling, dictatorial, rule over husband. This is the type of husband that Baal was, one that you had to submit to as a woman, to be controlled. And to, so no longer call me my master. No longer call me Baal. You'll call me my husband. No longer call me Baal. And it had become confused with the false God Baal in their minds, so it stopped being used. And God says here they will no longer call me Baal. Does it imply that people would misconceive of God as Baal, as a dictator, as an imposer of rules, as a punisher, as a taskmaster, and a time would come when they would no longer see him this way but see him as he really is? This is what this prophecy is, guys. It's an, act, it's an enactment of what happened. They misconstrued him as a, as a, as a rule-over, dictator, master-type controlling husband. And by the way, do we still see that in how people see women in the Middle East and husbands act in the Middle East? Look at how they treat their wives. This same construct of husband is my master. It's distortion. It's not God. No, we're not going to call him Baal anymore. No. What does it look like to consider God to be like Baal? To believe that he requires appeasements and inflicts punishments. That's what it looks like. Has Christianity struggled with a God like this? And has it, become, has it come time? Is it time today to no longer look at God and call him Baal. And notice now what happens when we finally... Notice the, the conclusion here of what happens when we finally stop seeing God as Baal. When we return to the truth about God, as was said earlier, revealed in Jesus, I will remove the names of the Baals from their lips. No longer will they their names be invoked. In that day, I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field and the birds of the air and the creatures that move along the ground. Bow and sword in battle, I will abolish from the land so that all may lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge the Lord. In that day, I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the skies and they will respond to the earth and the earth will respond to the grain and the new wine and the oil and they will respond respond to Jezreel I will plant for her myself in the land I will plant her for myself in the land I will show my people to love one to the one I called not my love I will show my love to the one called not my love I will say to those called not my people you are my people and they will say you are my god Do you notice what the what the hold up here is what is the problem in coming back to the reconciliation and unity with God so that he can restore? Notice, he's going to restore all things. The violence in the animals are going to be gone. He's going to take away the rebellion that the animals have for us and we can be safe again as it was that God created. The, the sky and the, and the storms are going to be gone. All that storm and, and hostility we see in nature. Nature is no longer going to be burdened by this. He's talking about the recreation of the new heaven and the earth. And what is it, the key, that enables us to come forward? When we stop teaching, God is like Baal. That's the final message of mercy. In Christ's Object Lessons 4.15, it says the final message of mercy to lighten the world for Christ's return is the truth about God's character of love. And we have exchanged it. Christianity has been duped to teach this distortion that God is like Baal.
2: To stop the idolatry.
0: We must stop it. Come back to the truth that God is exactly like Jesus revealed him to be. I wish we had time to go into the Old New Covenant, which is in Wednesday's lesson. There's some uh, really nice quotes about what those covenants are. I can tell you this much. The old covenant was broken about two weeks after it was given. That's when the old covenant was broken. The rest of everything else is the new covenant. Abraham was the new covenant. Uh, Adam was the new covenant christ and what he brought of course is the culmination of the new covenant all the actions of the old testament after the two weeks the two weeks up until the time they worshiped the golden calf that was the old covenant after that the rest of what they were doing was an enactment or a little illustration or a little theater a little play to show the new covenant it wasn't the old covenant the old covenant lasted two weeks that was it and the old covenant was simply obey and live. It's on you. We will do it. It's on us. We will, pro- we will provide our own remedy and heal ourselves. That was the old covenant. The new covenant is Christ will do for us what we can't do for ourselves. He will take our condition upon himself, cure the condition, provide remedy to heal and restore it So it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. And there's some really good quotes that describe this. So get the notes off our website and you can see those quotes. Our gracious heavenly father. We long for your coming. We are sometimes maybe impatient and frustrated because we see so many distortions about you. We see so many clinging to the bail concept of who you are, so many v- viciously fighting this message about your true character of love. And Lord, we pray that this fire fell for Elijah, that the fire of your spirit will fall on this earth. The fire of your truth and love will fall into our hearts and, and light a flame in, in, in our beings, that we can be uh, sentinel lights to, to reveal the truth about your character, that the, that the false ideas of you will be consumed in the fire of your love and truth, and the world will see you and you will come soon. We pray in your holy name, amen.